Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. A sake bar owner, Yusuke Shimoki, arrives on the doorstep of Hannah Kirshner's Brooklyn apartment, quote, with a suitcase full of Ishikawa sake, in Hannah's words. That visit sparked a years-long connection between Hannah and the rural Japanese community of Yamanaka, a home for artisans and artists, hunters and farmers, and other ordinary Japanese trying to live their lives in the countryside. Those visits are the subject of Hannah's book, Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town, published in hardcover by Viking in 2021 and in paperback by Penguin this year. Hannah learns how to make sake, craft wooden trays, hunt ducks, farm vegetables, and several other activities common in this part of rural Japan. And, as an added bonus, readers get to see recipes garnered from Hannah's time in Yamanaka. Hannah Kirshner is a writer, artist, and food stylist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Tea Magazine, Vogue, Savoir Taste, Food 52, Alice Obscura, and Food and Wine, among others. Trained at the Rhode Island School of Design, Kirshner grew up on a small farm outside Seattle and divides her time between Brooklyn and rural Japan. Today, Han and I talked about rural Japan, duck hunting, drinking sake, and growing vegetables, as well as some of her favorite recipes in the book. So, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian View Books podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Perhaps it's best to start with, you know, what what brings you to Yamanaka in the first place? Kind of how long were you there? Well, I'm going to try to tell the short version of the story and people can read the book for the long version. Um, as you said, you know, uh, Shimoki-san showed up at my door. Mm, how did that happen? About uh, seven, ten years earlier, I had spent um, a month in Kyoto in a bike messenger house. And one of my friends from that time, back then I was a bike racer and working in bike shops and stuff. And one of my friends from that time um, eventually became a bicycle tour guide in Ishikawa. And he kept telling me about this magical little mountain town of Yamanaka and how I was going to fall in love with it as soon as I came. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm busy. And then he's like, well, there's a sake bar there. The sake bar owner, he really wants to come to New York. So can you host him? Meanwhile, he tells the bar owner, Shimoki-san, oh, my friends in New York really want to meet you. So can you go to New York? <clears throat> and um, that clearly could have gone badly, but it went, it, it worked out. And Shimoki-san ended up um, inviting me to then come work in his bar in Ishikawa. And by then I was already doing food writing and recipe development and thinking about maybe I wanted to write a cookbook. And that seemed like a really interesting and unusual way in to, you know, learning about Japanese food from a very specific perspective to go work in this little sake bar in a mountain town. And so I went there thinking I wanted to write about food, but working in the bar, you know, a bar can sort of be a community hub in a way. So I met all these people the artisans, it's a, it, there's a real strong artisan culture here. And in this town specifically, I met farmers. I met somebody who was like the last guy making charcoal in his village. I met artists. And I started to think, well, I don't really just want to write recipes. I want to write the stories behind the food. Like how do all these things come to the table? How are people making them and why are they making them the way that they are? So, oh, and you asked how long I spent. So, um, 
you know, the, the, from the idea of the book around that time until finishing the manuscript, it was about five years on and off. The last year and a half of that, I was pretty much completely living in Yamanaka. And before that, I was going back and forth and I continue to go back and forth. So, you know, another another question that's probably far too big to to answer in a short period of time. But, you know, I, I've never I've personally never, never been to rural Japan. I'm sure many people have. I think the only experience I've had in rural Japan is sound terrible is watching Let's Plays of the Persona 4 video game, which is set in a similar rural Japanese town. <laughs> but what's actually I mean, you know, what are these what are these? What are these kind of rural communities like? Um, you know, I, I, or rather, kind of, kind of, what what's the environment like? What's the size of the town? Kind of, what are the sorts of people that live there? Sure. Well, I mean, I always kind of feel like big cities, big international cities, are a little bit the same wherever you go, whether it's New York or Tokyo or Paris. I mean, of course, they each have their distinct culture, but I, I, you know, they're big international cities. I always feel like it's when you get to the countryside that you get really unique local culture. I mean, the Japanese countryside, the, I think the impression that a lot of people have, and this is, is you know, true in terms of data, is that the countryside is emptying out. Young people have moved to the cities for work. You know, the pop population of Japan is aging and shrinking. Um, and yet, Yamanaka, I mean, it has over a thousand years history of being a tourist destination because of its hot springs. And that has supported this really vibrant craft community of, of woodworkers, wood turners, who could then sell their crafts to visitors. And um, so even though, yeah, it's true, the population is shrinking, there's lots of empty houses at the same time, like young people, young artists, farmers, people who are interested in craft and living closer to nature in learning traditional skills are coming here be because of um, the, the history of this town and, and the craft culture of this this town, Yamanaka Onsen, which is in Ishikawa Prefecture. So that's the Sea of Japan side. And um, like if you, if you got on a train in Tokyo and you pretty much head west three hours until you hit the ocean and then go back up into the mountains a little, that's, that's where it is. So you mentioned... You mentioned the onsen, um, and I, I don't want to ask about kind of the, the onsen. Really, does seem like it's this is this community hub. You go there, everyone goes to the onsen. It's a you call it a much better way to unwind than I guess whatever. Like, was it lying on the couch and watching Netflix or something? Um, I wonder if I talk a little bit about about the onsen and how it and how it kind of becomes this hub for the community. Yeah. So um, the onsen. So onsen just means hot spring, but. In this case, it's a public bath. So, um, you know, all over Japan, there used to be public bathhouse culture where people didn't have a bath in their house. Um, you went and you used the public bath. And it really is a kind of social in infrastructure. Like, you, so you go and you you shower and then you soak in these, these communal, you know, huge hot tubs with natural hot spring water. And a lot of people, most people have a routine. They go at a certain time every day. I mean, to this day, a lot of older houses in this town don't have a bath. And even people who do have a bath barely use it, many of them, because they'd rather go to the onsen. And I think especially for like, you know, elderly neighbors or people who live alone, it's like, you know, somebody's going to notice if they don't show up for a few days and, and look in on them or, 
um, I don't know, even when I was writing, that can be such solitary work. I'd spend a lot of time alone and then go to the onsen and sort of just, even if I'm not really talking to people in the same way as like going to a coffee shop and working or something, just that sense of just, you know, being with your neighbors, being with other people. One of my favorite chapters in your book is the chapter on on duck hunting, or specifically the the hunting using nets, where they kind of catch using nets to kind of catch and hunt ducks. Um, I wonder if you might say a bit more about that experience. What I guess what this practice is, and what it was like being part um, of these of this duck hunting group. Yeah. So this was the one chapter that didn't take place right, in, you know, in the town of Yamanaka, but out. 20 minutes towards the coast and um there's this sport called saka amirio uh literally means slope net hunting but what it is is they have these hunters who are you know now mostly i mean the young guys are 50 most of the guys are 7 60 70 80 years old and they go and just as dusk is falling up on the hillsides around this pond near the coast, they bring these nets that's like a Y-shaped, you know, it's maybe two, three meters tall, and it's like Y-shaped with a fishing net strung into the Y. And um, as the ducks fly over, they toss it up into the air, ideally with the timing so that the duck doesn't see it coming from below and flies into the net and falls to the ground and is stunned. And it's an incredibly inefficient way of hunting and really evolved as like a skills practice for a samurai um, and has continued as this, this uh, very unusual, specific, local way of hunting. I think there's maybe one other place in Japan that does it. Um, so, you know, there's 20 people here still practicing it and they don't really admit a lot of visitors, but I was able to go along with a guy from Yamanaka and, um, and for a whole season, which lasts from November to February, go out with them each evening, maybe not every day, but at least a few times a week and watch them hunt. And there was by actually going out there with them and experiencing it, I could learn what it was about in a way that never would have come up in an interview. Seeing how each day at the same time, the sunset is a little bit different. How they become experts in the wind because ducks are, and that's how they predict which way the ducks are going to fly, how high or how low, what's going to be the best spot to be that day seeing, you know, a particular flower bud and then bloom and then drop or just watching the the seasons change in these just minute ways. Um, I was really ambivalent. I still am somewhat ambivalent about hunting, but I understood what it's about in a whole different way by doing that, by being out there with them. You know, one of my I'm I'm going to shift tax a little bit. I mean, one of my one of my favorite lines in in your book, and I believe it's in this chapter, um, is the one where you say, uh, I think you write, "Some feminists will think me a traitor, but there's a certain amount of sexism I'm willing to tolerate for a good pickle." And I believe that's a comment from from one of the hunters there. And and the reason I bring that line up, um, I mean, there are several kind of 
paths to go from that one about kind of gender involving you know these traditions used to be male only but they're starting to accept more women as a as a way to kind of keep the traditional life but what i actually want to ask is um you know one thing i i greatly enjoyed by your or appreciate in your book is kind of you are quite self-aware and quite honest about your position as you know you're an american woman in rural japan um you note how that changes how people treat you uh oftentimes in ways that are helpful to you it, it gives you a door a window into some of these traditions um whereas otherwise you might it might take years you're the person kind of showing you the ropes might be a lot harsher if you were not if you were japanese i want you to might kind of talk about how how like i guess you being you being not of the region kind of actually may have given you a different window to some of these practices Sure. Well, okay. So that that quote from the book, I'm talking about one of the Sakaamuryo hunters who was very cranky about having a woman there at first. I mean, women are still not allowed to participate. And um, I gradually won him over because he makes amazing tsukemono um, fermented pickles. And um, I really love pickles. And <laughs> by the end of by the end of that season, um, I got him to give me his some of his his recipes. So, yeah, we gradually uh, built a friendship over pickles. But um, and I fell in love with that sakami hunting so much that by the end I was like, I want to do this. I want to join. And that's when I had the sort of rude awakening that no, w- women aren't allowed to join. It's not just that there that don't happen to be any women there. Like they're still not allowed. Um, but you know, I was really here as a writer, as an observer, um, not to impose my views or my culture, um, though I'm sure simply by my presence um, and personality, perhaps that has an influence. But um, yeah, I mean, I there are both challenges and privileges to being an outsider and by being the perpetual guest by visually appearing different as the perpetual guest. Um, uh, I sometimes have access to things that somebody that grew up here wouldn't. Um, and you know, people, people kind of, they want to show off or they want to share to, to, to a guest. (laughs) Um, and I also was freer from some of the expectations on women. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, I just thought it was important to, to acknowledge that in the book and, um, you know, uh, my white privilege also carries with me, not just in the U S but in other places too. And it's, interesting and uncomfortable to see how that plays out. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is part of the reason I chose to write the book in the first person too. I mean, not, I mean, not only as a narrative device to sort of bring the reader in and make it more intimate, but also to acknowledge the experiences and biases and, and, um, perspective that I bring with me as an observer, you know, it's not really possible ever to be a completely neutral observer and just 
just by being present, we have an effect on what we're observing. I, I'm going to transition back to talking about your experiences in the town because, you know, I noted in my in my previous question that you know there are a lot more um, the a lot, a lot of these traditions are being more open to um, accepting new people, training new people um, in an effort to kind of keep these traditions alive, uh, both on the artisanal side. But I'm also thinking of um, of and I'm I'm unfortunately cannot remember her name in the book, but the but the but the female boar hunter that you met. Ah, oh, Sakura-san. Um, Yes, that's right. Yes, um, you know maybe you could talk a bit about 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 being with her as she was um, as go, going with her on 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 boar hunts. Yeah. So the other chapter in the book that is about uh, hunting is about boar hunting. Boars are a real um, challenge here as an agricultural pest, especially as villages become depopulated and the forest kind of encroaches. And so Sakura took up boar hunting as a way to defend her neighbor's farms. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to um, share that, you know, while there are very strong gender expectations in Japan, of course, culture is shifting and there are always people that do what they want regardless and and people that accept them. So um yeah, and she does not like being referred to as a female hunter. She's just a hunter. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you want to know about the boar hunting? There's there's so much. Um, I mean, that was another experience of, of, you know, just realizing how much hunting is about spending time in the woods, which is something that I absolutely love to do. I mean, I grew up in on a small farm in the mountains at the edge of a forest, too. So, um which was part of why I fell in love with Yamanaka so much is just, it's like it, I mean, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest of the U- United States and um, the landscape here is really similar in a lot of ways with cedar trees and ferns and moss. Um, and I really bonded with the hunters just over that kind of, I don't know, shared appreciation of of being in the woods i think i'd I'd like to maybe ask a little bit you know what of near the end of the book you talk about how you kind of got your own plot of land and you started kind of raising your vegetables and how you then i think what struck me a little bit is kind of like you had you had a community there who um it ended up being less of them mentoring you and more just kind of both all of you kind of working together to figure out the best way to grow to grow these vegetables i think i'd like to kind of end talking about some of your specific experiences in Yamanaka with kind of talking about that chapter on, on you growing your vegetable farm. Yeah. Well, you know, I had set out to write the book um, with specific sections in mind, right? Water, wood, wild things and cultivation. And and those being the sort of things that represent the culture of the town. And I wanted to have a chapter on vegetables and sort of all my plans for who I was going to write about fell apart. And so I borrowed some land and decided I'll just grow vegetables. And I bet if I show up and start growing vegetables that the, the older people around are going to come over curious about what I'm doing and tell me what to do. And I'm going to learn that way. Um, but by that point, you know, doing all these activities as research for the book, um, that became my life and I became part of the community and, and, um, expected to be part of the community too. And, and it was really kind of amazing how, 
my friends showed up to help me grow vegetables, you know, get the plot ready, grow things, harvest things together. I just love being part of a place where like people's idea of fun is to, um, or to like be part of a community, a group of friends where people's idea of fun is to just, you know, oh, so-and-so is doing a project. Like, let's go help. Let's go do this project together. Um, and yeah, I mean, now I continue to come to Yamanaka and, you know, one of the other things I did for research was working in a sake brewery where I was the first woman or foreigner in 14 generations, um, did not really expect to be very accepted there. But after I was finished writing the book, they asked me to come back and keep working. And I had loved that work so much that I've continued to work at the sake brewery now for um, this will be coming up on my third or fourth season working in the um, sake brewery during the winter part time. So I do have to ask you, break up your stories with uh, from old Japan with a list of recipes inspired by your time there. Um, I wonder if you might talk about some of your favorites and what might be best for um, someone who is maybe a terrible cook like myself. <laughs> what's, what's the best one maybe for a person who's not that great at cooking to try out for themselves? Right. Well, so, you know, what was kind of freeing for me is since this isn't really a cookbook, it's, it's you know, narrative, the recipes could really be part of the storytelling and they didn't ha necessarily have to be practical. So there are some recipes in there. Like, I mean, are you going to be able to go harvest wild wasabi greens where you live? Probably not. Are you going to be able to find akazuki, the satoimo stems, red satoimo stems, taro stems? Um, probably, probably not. But it's still, I think, interesting to archive and document those very local recipes. But of course, I really did want readers to also be able to um, bring home a little taste of Yamanaka too. So probably the easiest would be the onigiri, the rice balls. You know, you're just cooking good rice, at good short grain Japonica rice and uh, squishing it together with your hands, maybe with a umeboshi or some other filling inside. Um, that would be the simplest. There's a fried chicken recipe that is really, um, it is just really to me the perfect fried Japanese fried chicken karage um and there's an ice cream recipe actually from the sake brewery their shop they have sake kasu flavored soft serve sake kasu is the, the sediment of like yeast and rice and koji um that's left over from from brewing sake and um it's pressed out when you sort of press the sake to to make it uh, clear and liquid instead of this sort of slurry and um, it's got this just like amazing floral yeasty sake aroma and they make an ice cream with that and so I have a recipe for the ice cream in the book which I think is not if you have an ice cream maker is not too hard but um, definitely the onigiri would be the the most approachable. So I, I want to kind of I, I have a one or two more questions, but they're kind of bigger picture questions. Um, you've mentioned you mentioned near the beginning of our conversation that you know one thing we'll know about rural Japan is that is that it's it's kind of emptying out. You know, young people are um, leaving; they're going to the they're going to the city. A lot of the people you meet in your book 
um, especially the older ones, are kind of accepting that that well, they're trying their best to keep the tradition alive by teaching it to new younger people, um, but also understanding that it might not happen. Um, you know, Japan's not the only country that's kind of struggling with how to keep small towns alive. I know it's it's a problem in Europe. It's a problem in the U.S. It's a problem in just about, I think, any kind of uh, advanced economy, even kind of upper middle income. I mean, China's dealing with this, too. Um, you know, what do you think about about that problem, at least from a whether from an economic or social perspective or a cultural, you know, perspective, kind of keeping practices and traditions alive? Okay, you just, like, what, what do you think about the, the issue of of small towns. So much of this book was about documenting traditions and the sort of traditional culture of this town. But the people practicing these traditions are not stuck in the past. I mean, Takehito Nakajima, the woodturner that I write about, says, you know, that he's hoping to make things now that will be considered traditional 100 years from now. And I think that's really important to remember that traditions weren't always traditions. They started at some point. And, um, you know, they, they're living and changing. And I think at the same time as, you know, I wanted to, to document a lot of these crafts and practices that, that could vanish because they are really beautiful and precious. I think, like, as a woman, it's hard to be too romantic about the past and or as any for anybody who's in any way a minority or would have would have been or is excluded from a lot of these traditions. Um, you know, I really was am curious, was curious in in my writing about like, can we preserve the essence or what's important or beautiful about these traditions at the same time as um, letting them open and change and evolve and throwing out the parts that um, are not so good. And really every single person that I wrote about is answering that question in their own way. You know, I, I want to end by talking about, and your. You're, you, you're still going back to the region, so it's not like you're, you're, you wrote the book and you were done. But kind of what's, how's the region, what's, what's happened in Yamanaka kind of since you kind of closed off the experiences for, for this book? I mean, you do mention COVID in your, um, in your, in your final, final chapter um, and, and how that's made it more difficult for communities like Yamanaka. It is a tourist, it, it does attract visitors, but obviously with COVID, there haven't been visitors um, domestically or um or internationally for sure in fact i should ask you off maybe after the call about how you're able to get to japan given all of your well i'm a resident i still am a resident that's why but i was i was i was stuck outside the country for a while you know i had finished my manuscript and gone home thinking i'd be back in a few months so i would deal with you know my apartment and stuff then and um it ended up being quite long because that was the end of 2019 um that so it was like 10 months or something before i could get back to japan but um, but yeah, I'm a resident, so that's how I go back and forth. But um, yeah, it ha- but it has been a struggle for the town. I mean, they um, a lot of the businesses, even that serve the local community, are able to stay open and thrive because of the support also of tourists. But a lot of the tourism here is domestic, not so much international. I mean, onsen tourism, hot spring tourism is really popular within Japan. And so, you know, some of that 
domestic travel has continued. I mean, there was a while in, in 2020 where it, it, it just fell off a cliff, but, um, you know, it's, it's gradually returning and it's been kind of amazing to see how stoic people are about it. I mean, obviously their businesses are struggling, but they're just sort of like doing what they have to do. Um, and a few businesses in the town closed, uh, some hotels, um, some restaurants, but also others have opened. I think there's been like three new coffee shops in the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how tourism returns and whether people take a different approach to it, particularly in other cities in Japan where there's been sort of over tourism like Kyoto and, um, um, I don't know. I think there's also some hopes or initiatives to try and encourage more rural tourism in Japan, which I think would be really amazing because, I mean, I hope that in my writing I've made people fall in love with Yamanaka as much as I have, but I also hope that people will think about the distinct and special local culture wherever they are. I mean, everywhere you know, has its own character, its own special things. And so, um, yeah, I hope that people will take that away too. Not that that the message isn't everybody come to Yamanaka, but let's take a close look at um, what's precious and local wherever we are. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Hannah Kirshner, author of Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. Hannah, I actually have two final, final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what's what's next for you? What do you think your next project may be? Well, um, excuse me just a second. <clears throat> um, people can find the book anywhere that they buy books. It's online, in your local bookstore, in the U.S., and in actually a lot of other places, too. It seems to be in the locals. So, um, Yeah anywhere you buy books. And now I'm back in Yamanaka. I bought an old house and am beginning to renovate that house and hopefully eventually revive the farmland around it too with, with friends and neighbors. So um, that's, that's my next project. That's what's consuming me right now. And I'm learning a lot about um, traditional architecture and thinking about um, how we're going to live with climate change in the future and what, what new technologies might help us as well as um, what traditional or ancient technologies we can also learn from about how to best live in, in particular environments. So that's the house project. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asia Review Books podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Stay tuned for info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And if listeners want to follow along with my work, um, they can find me at, at Sweets and Bitters, Sweets, the letter N, Bitters, on um, Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>